Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. And they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunder, and saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole book, the whole scripture is the revelation of Jesus Christ in various ways. But this book at the end, this book of revelation is in particular the revelation of Jesus Christ to his people. Last time we spoke of the wedding of the Lamb, and that's an extremely important aspect of who Christ is, but of course that is the way he is to his own people. He is the bridegroom. 
to his own people, to his bride, to his wedding guests. And this morning we'll be looking at who Christ is to those who are outside, to the unrepentant sinners and rebels. Who is he to those? He is, in short, he is the conquering king. He is the one who is going to conquer them. He is the one who is going to shed their blood and bring them to justice. Now, of course, Christ, as he is in himself and he is the image of the invisible God. He represents the unchangeable God, the perfect image, the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't change. But the main aspects of his character that are displayed in certain circumstances, displayed, they differ in accordance with whom he's dealing with. So, as we mentioned, the aspect that is being displayed to us, to his own people, he is the lamb. He is the lamb that is slain. He has laid down his life. He is the savior of sinners. He shows them mercy and grace. But to those outside, it is different. And, of course, it's not merely that he is just the conquering king, there are various aspects of his character that are being displayed. And it's not just his power, it's not just his sovereignty, it's certainly those things. But it's also the fact that he's faithful and true and that none of his words ever fall to the ground. That his threatenings are really going to happen. When he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's also that he's just, of course. It's not merely that he has power and authority to do these things, it's that he's perfectly just as he carries out these things. Indeed, something that we might want to meditate whenever we think about God's justice and his, his wrath on sinners, as we consider just how terrible, just how complete, uh, just how awful are these things, we have to understand then it's just. And if therefore it's just, what does that tell us about the nature of sin? That however terrible and however infinite this pouring out of wrath might be, it is perfectly just. It is merely what these sins deserve. What does that tell us about sin? Well, whatever it tells us about sin, again, what it's mainly telling us about is Christ. It's telling us about his perfections, his holiness. And it's not just in abstract terms that this is an aspect of his character that's being talked about. We're not just talking about. He is demonstrating, he's manifesting these things in his works, the actual works that we see in this chapter display also these, these things of his character. He's making war against the unbelieving nations and peoples. He's judging them, and he's pouring out the wrath of God upon them. He is treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. And as we can already guess, this is not a sanitized depiction of, of these things. There is blood involved. There is blood depicted for us because there is blood at the heart of the Christian religion. Those opponents of the faith have called it that bloody religion, and they're absolutely true. It is, that is the case. At the heart of our faith, there is blood. Why? Because at the heart of the human problem, there is sin. And it, there is something that we have not yet understood. We must understand it this morning that where there is sin, there must also be blood. The only question is whose blood and how is it going to be shed? Because in every case, there are no exceptions. Wherever there is sin, there must be blood as the price. 
And as we stand here this morning, all of us, in, in all of our circumstances, whatever you think your problem might be, you have only one problem, and that is sin. And there is only one solution to that one problem, and that is the blood. Somebody's blood. Whether the blood of Christ, for those who believe in him. The blood which washes away our sin, which makes us just. And that week by week, and indeed moment by moment, this continual fountain of blood flowing into us is what saves us. The ongoing reality of the blood of Christ that has atoned and will ever atone for our sins. Or it will be our own blood that will be shed. But we must be certain that wherever there is sin, there must be blood. And so we see this blood-soaked religion and this blood-soaked Savior as he carries out the just wrath of God on all sinners who remain unrepentant. Christ is the conquering king, and that is the subject of this morning's sermon, the conquering king, because these things will be brought to an end. These things will be dealt with perfectly. And in this conquering king, we consider these four aspects, these four points. His name, his description, his weaponry, and his deeds. Just as with any piece of literature, when a king is being uh, introduced, when a king is being described for us in some great dramatic work, we have the name, we have his description, we have a maybe depicted for us what he's wearing, his, his weaponry, and of course his deeds. That's what we have this morning. And we begin with his name. Now, ordinary people have rather ordinary and straightforward names. Because their origin is rather ordinary, their existence and their accomplishments are ordinary, and this ordinary identity can be summarized rather briefly and straightforwardly. But that's just not the case with kings. You can't just say, Bob from Newcastle, there's more complexity to their, their names. And as we look at this, we are, we're struck by the fact that there are uh, three different sections that deal with the name of this conquering king. And part of the complexity of, of legitimate kings is indeed how much of the king's identity is known to the public. It is part of the glory of kings not to reveal every aspect of their identity. And so in verse 12 it says that this king had a name written that no one knew except himself. No one knew except himself. Now, knowing someone's name entails having some degree of power or influence over someone. Okay? It's certainly the case in the ancient Middle East culture, but I would also say it's true today. In Genesis 32:29, Jacob said, Tell me your name. He's wrestling with the angel, the pre-incarnate form of Christ. Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he doesn't answer him. He wants to know this name. He wants to have some sort of leverage over Christ in order that he can demand that he be given a blessing. But his name is not revealed because it is, it is not um, for him to know at this point. And likewise in Judges 13.6, the woman came and told her husband saying, A man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask where he was from. And he did not tell me his name. 
Well, he wasn't being impolite. This conquering king does not reveal every aspect of his character to just all and coming. And you know, even today, it is sometimes a big deal to be on first name basis with very powerful people. Even at schools, sometimes children think it's a, a big deal to be able to find out the, the given names of their teachers. In the military, the private soldiers think it's a, a wonder, amazing thing to find out the, the first name of their, their commanders because there's an aspect then of having leverage by knowing the person's identity. And indeed, were you to know every aspect of someone else's identity, you could have a great deal of power over them because, of, of course, in various ways, you could manipulate them or you could blackmail them or whatever. Well, we need to understand when we consider the name of this king that we do not know every aspect of his identity. And there are some things that he keeps to himself. And there, he has this name written that no one knew except himself. He's not a vulgar celebrity, this king, where every part of his life is an open book for anyone just to find out every aspect. Yes, he's truly revealed. Yes, this revelation is precisely to reveal Christ. But there are aspects of him that yet remain beyond our comprehension and beyond public gaze. Well, if there is a part of his name that's not revealed, there are other aspects that certainly are. Because in verse 11 it says, He who sat on him was called faithful and true. Not just that he was faithful and true, that he's called faithful and true. That is an appellation given to him. That is a description of this great king. And it's not the first time we've heard it because in the letter to the church of Laodicea back in the letter to the seven churches in Revelation 3.14, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This aspect of his character is, uh, it's of course, true both for the, the unbelieving world as, as well as to God's own people. He is the faithful and true. And when he's speaking to his own people, he must tell them this is the faithful and true. It's our great problem beyond sin. One of the things that's great, greatly connected with that problem is the fact that we're in darkness and that the, Satan is lying to us. The world is lying to us. We're in its deception. We're in a, a land of smoke and mirrors and we can't, if you've lived for any time in this world, you know that you can't trust people. You cannot trust things that you hear. You cannot trust the media. And we begin to wonder if there's anything that we can trust. Well, we certainly can trust this king. He identifies himself and he is known and his people recognize that he is faithful and true. Now, of course, there are two senses to the word faithful. There's a sense of being loyal, you know, a faithful dog or something like that. And there's a sense of accuracy and truth. And I think that's the aspect of that that's being in view here. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called A Faithful Narrative. It didn't mean that it was a loyal narrative. It meant that it was an accurate and true representation of the events. And we can be absolutely sure that there is such an accurate connection between the words of this king and his deeds. When you think about this king, if you're outside of Christ, and we're going to talk about how he's going to bring you and all unbelievers into judgment, and he's going to pour out the wrath of God upon you, Please do not think that this is just a fairy tale. Please do not think that maybe there's some chance it won't happen because these are the words of the one who is faithful and true. So it says in Revelation 22.6, he said to me, these words are faithful and true. 
And also, in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. That's another title that he has. Again, this is a complex king. It's a, it's a world universal king. And these sorts of kings are going to have many different titles and many different names. And he's the Word of God. And that is a particularly significant title and, and name for John, isn't it? So we think of the very beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that was the subject of the very first sermon preached here nearly four years ago. The idea of this Word of God, that the invisible God yet can make himself known because he is a communicative being, as we were talking about at the the conference on Friday. This invisible, unknowable, spiritual God makes himself known in his creation, makes himself known in the work of redemption, and supremely makes himself known in Scripture. He's revealing himself. And the conduit of this is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the bosom of the Father. And he alone can make the Father known to us. He's the Word of God. Same thing, by the way, that's the way the book of 1 John, which we went through not so long ago, that's the way that book began. 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Because we know that the prologue to John goes on to say that this eternal word of life took on to himself human flesh. And this apostle John then in his letter could say this word of life, this word of God I've touched because he's taken on human flesh. Well, that is the nature, that is the identity of this conquering king. He is the word of God who has taken on human flesh. And then it says in verse 16, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the particular aspect that is now being displayed in all of its perfection. You know, just a few verses ago, we were talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And if you were to receive a wedding invitation from this, you would get something that would maybe say the Lamb. The Lamb invites you to this wedding feast. And it's going to be the marriage between the Lamb and his bride. Because that's the aspect of Christ's character that is in view towards his own people. He is gentle as a lamb. But that's not what we have here. What is being publicly displayed as he goes out on his horse with his sharp two-edged sword, with his army to put to death all the rebels, is not a lamb. No, it is the lion of Judah, and particularly this king of kings and lord of lords. But it is not gentleness, it is not condescension and compassion, it is rather ultimate authority and power that is being displayed. No longer veiled, you know, Christ in a state of humility, his glory and his power was veiled in the state of humiliation. And he had this amazing vulnerability. No one knew who he was. People treated him all too often, very ordinarily. And there was a vulnerability, a necessary vulnerability, that he could be the lamb, that he could suffer and he could die. And indeed, he was put to death by human hands. But that vulnerability is gone when he comes as a conquering king. There's no vulnerability at all. It's just supreme power and absolute unmitigated authority. 
He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's his name. Well, that's his name. Secondly, think about the description of this king. You probably recall um, the importance of the physical description given of Christ back in the chapter in chapter one. It's determinative for the rest of Revelation. You have this typological depiction of Christ and his various aspects and attributes that are displayed in the physical characteristics that that John saw and that he describes for us. Well, this description that we have is very much in harmony with aspects of that. First of all, his eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Well, that's exactly what we had back in Revelation 1.14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And then he goes on to use that very same depiction when he talks to the angel, the, the church in Thyatira. He says, these things says, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And what does it depict? What does it show? It shows his holiness, like a flame of fire coming from within pouring out from his eyes. In Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. That's the one with whom we have to deal with. We can never forget that. Certainly, those who are outside of Christ cannot forget his holiness, but we ourselves cannot forget his holiness. If we were in the presence, if we could actually see this Jesus Christ with his eyes like a flaming fire, of eyes that are purer than to behold sin, would you not fear to sin? Would you not fear to do the things that you may have fallen into this last week? Would that not be driven from your heart immediately at one look at this flame of fire, this display of perfect holiness? Would it not vanish any taste that you had from sin for sin? Well, that's his eyes. And his head, on his head were many crowns. On his head are put these symbols of royal, kingly authority, these many diadems. Now, we understand that human kings do not often wear many crowns. They have many titles, but it's really, in some sense, impossible to wear multiple crowns. But one crown would not be nearly enough for this particular king because his authority is more than just of an earthly king. Again, he is the king of kings, and therefore he has these multiple crowns to display this multiplicity of his authority in every realm. He has, he has kingly authority on earth. He has kingly authority in heaven. We say, in fact, in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because that is the reality of his kingly authority. And though rebels work against these things and it's not manifest, right now it looks like Satan's in control. One day that kingly authority will be absolutely certain that he is king of all realms and all times and all peoples everywhere. And his clothing, what's his clothing? It says, verse 13, it doesn't describe royal purple uh, robes. It doesn't describe the kind of vulgar and over-the-top kind of display that Babylon had of merely robes that were dyed with some sort of artificial dye. What we have actually is he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And we can understand that Christ's people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We understand that. But we have to ask the question, why is Christ's own robe dipped in blood? Why is it dipped? And whose blood is it? Well, there's a hint back in Revelation 14.20. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came up out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. This 
winepress of the wrath of God was being trampled. And the question is, it doesn't identify, right, in verse 14, 20, it doesn't identify who's doing it. And the question is, who trampled it? Well, the answer to that question is back in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, 2. Why is your apparel red? Speaking of Christ. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And here's the answer. Christ's answer. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Ladies and gentlemen, this blood is not his own. Again, that is what is given to God's people who have received him in faith. He pours out his own blood, and we get to wash our garments in it. That's not the kind of blood here. It is the blood of his enemies as he goes forth to slay them. Again, we need to understand the reality of these things. The world recoils against such things. And if you can summarize the trajectory of modern history from the late Victorian times until now, it is to get rid of the blood. Clean it up. Censor it. Because we can't stand to think about that. I've got a book on my, my shelf. I can't bring myself to read it. It's called The Nonviolent Atonement. Blasphemous, heretical lies. The idea that there can be atonement for sin that does not involve the shedding of blood. It's not true. And more so, and we can be absolutely certain, there cannot be justice. God cannot be just and leave the blood of those who rebel against him in their veins. He's going to shed it. He's going to bring them to justice. And he is not afraid then to be revealed to us this day. That's what he's doing. All right? It's not the picture of the lame, effeminate 1970s Jesus with the long hair and the soft face. The picture of the Bible that he's showing us right now. Don't look away from it. You look at this. Is someone whose own clothes are dipped in the blood of his enemies. That's the real Jesus Christ. That's the one with whom we have come to deal with this morning. He is... His... Name, and in his character and in his description, he is this great judge and conqueror of his enemies. And that's what it says then about his character in verse 11. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. We've talked about his name. We've talked about his physical appearance. We've talked about his clothing. And if we want to understand who this one is, we want to understand what he's like, it says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's what he does. He's prepared for battle, and we're going to see how he conquers. We're going to see how he brings to justice these these enemies. But at no point should we ever think that this is an unjust war. You know, we have a lot of protests against war, don't we? We have a lot of protests against violence. And what we say is that these things are not just. There's no just cause for them. And probably in every human war, you could find some element that you could make a case. Somehow, some wars are more just than other wars. That's true. And arguments can be made. 
But that is not the case for the war that this king is going to carry out at the end. That no argument could possibly be made against his justice at all. It is a, the ultimate just war. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Again, in fact, if he were not to do it, it would be unjust. If he were not to carry out vengeance, if he were not to bring these people to justice, it would be unjust. We must remember that. Thirdly, we've got to consider his weaponry. We see how he looks, we see what he's wearing, but what, what is the equipment around him? What is his weapons of war? Well, first, that is mentioned as his horse, verse 11, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And this white horse refers back to Revelation 6, 2, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, I would submit to you that there are different ways in which Christ conquers and that even in these two depictions in Revelation, there are slightly different nuances that point a little bit differently to this work of conquering. I don't want to completely separate it because it's inseparable, but there are different aspects to it. You remember the conquering back then, I said, was maybe a little bit more, he was going, it wasn't a sword actually in his hand, but a bow. And he was going out, in, in essence, to conquer places and peoples for himself. He was going out hunting. He was going out to capture people with the, go, with the idea of capturing, of course, his own elect, his own people. And now he's still on that white horse. He's still, he's still the vehicle, as it were, for his conquest. But he's conquering in a sense of doing battle against the enemy. Now, I'd also say, incidentally, that the foundation for the, all that was laid. It's not that he, at the end, finally goes out to conquer. He has been going out to conquer. That is the reality throughout the church age. He is on that white horse, even now, and he is going out to conquer. And he uses the weapons, and he lays the foundation then for one of the other thing, either to bring you to himself, so that you'll be seated with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb, or that you're gathered for the great day of his vengeance. So he's on this white horse. And he has with him an army. It says in verse 14, The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So it's not just that Christ himself has his white horse. In fact, all who follow him are on white horses. And it's speaking of the armies in heaven. Now, I, it could be argued whether it is the angels or whether the saints or both. I would say it's probably both. And it's, I think, reminding us that um, both are described to share in the work of the final judgment. You know, um, we know the angels throughout the Gospels are depicted as those who are going to be doing this work of, of vengeance along with Christ. And then it also is revealed to us in Scripture that we share in the work of judging the world. We share in the work of bringing them to justice. And so we must remember that those who are in union with Christ will share in all of his works, in all of his attributes. Look, if you, I know sometimes hard to believe this, it's sometimes hard to get your head wrapped around this, but if you put your faith in Christ, you really are in union with him. And just like being married with someone, you share in everything, every part. Okay, so if there are possessions, they're shared. If there are attributes, increasingly as well, they are shared. You say that old couples who have been together for a lifetime, they, they, so many of their things, so many of their attributes 
are shared in common. We even say sometimes they start to look like one another. Well, that's really true with us in Christ. We share his, we increasingly share his attributes. One thing is for certain, that we certainly share in his deeds, in his work. He's going to take us with us, you see, when he does this work of judging the world. And we're going to be there clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and we're going to be on horses. I don't notice, by the way, any weapons. Isn't that interesting? We're in white linen, we're on the horses, but it doesn't seem like we have any weapons in our hands. Notice that? In fact, as you go on, it seems like they're playing no major role whatsoever. It's almost as if they are along for the ride. Because I think in some sense they are. It doesn't mean to say that we don't have some minor part to play. But as we're looking at this king, as we're understanding this work of redemption, this under, work of conquering, it is a work of Christ alone and no one stands with him. When he was at the cross, no one stood with him. And when he will come to bring justice on this earth, he will tread the winepress of God's wrath alone. But we will be around, we will be there along for the ride. Now, that's his army. Every king has to have an army. He does have one, even though it doesn't seem like we do all that much. But now his weapon, his sword... It says in verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. Now I almost have to apologize because of the lack of suspense here. There is nothing to reveal to you that you wouldn't have guessed. What is this, this two-edged sword that comes from his mouth? Well, of course, it's the word of God. We have that throughout scripture, don't we? And I, I think, for instance, of, of Psalm 149. Um, this, incidentally, um, is where we actually have a weapon in our hands, but it's derivative, of course, of Christ's work, and that's the way we always think of ourselves. It says in, uh, in Psalm 149.5, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with iron, fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Now, of course, that's tying together the notion of our participation in this work of judgment. It's an honor that is given to saints, but of course we have in our hands there, at least depicted, a two-edged sword. Well, you see, the thing is, I think maybe the reason why it's not then shown for us here is because if you have a picture of us, and you just take a snapshot of us, you'll see the two-edged sword in our hand. But if Christ is in the picture, all you see is from him. Because he, of course, is supremely the word of God. You cannot have a multiplicity of that. He is the source. He's the origin. The reason why this sword is sharp and powerful is straight, simply because it's coming from Christ, ultimately. And as Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Two-edged, why? Some of you may know that the sword hanging in, in our lounge is not a two-edged sword. It's, it's a one-edged sword, and it only therefore is limited in its, its purpose. It can't do everything. It only works one way. Well, God's word works both ways. It works 
uh, towards his people. It works to do the work of surgery. It is a discerner of their hearts. It works to reach into us and cut away the cancerous tumors of sin. It works to make us clean. It works to conquer and bring us to himself. It brings healing, actually, in its midst as it, as it does this work in our hearts. But on the other, other side, the other edge, of course, it brings judgment. And that's what happens each and every time that the word of God is proclaimed faithfully. Speaking at the, um, the concert, we're talking about the great power of the word of God that it always does, as Isaiah says. It always does what it is supposed to do. God doesn't just send it out in vain. It always accomplishes the purposes that it's set out to do. And you say, well, there are days, sadly, Bill, where people don't get saved. That people don't come to saving faith in Christ. Well, don't forget it's a two-edged sword. That other edge is going to bring people to judgment. And there is not, you cannot hear the word of God and remain unchanged. You are going to be held accountable for it. The word of God, if it has reached your ears, then the sword has, is touching your soul. And that word of God is doing its work. And whether that work is to save you or to condemn you, well, God knows and time will tell. But this sharp two-edged sword is supremely in the mouth of Jesus Christ. We may have it in our hands, but it is coming from his mouth, isn't it? And it says in Revelation 1.16, when we first meet Christ in Revelation, he had in his hand seven stars, but out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And we know that this is the weapon by which he is going to conquer the whole world. There will be no exception. Every last person who has ever been created, every last person who has ever lived will feel this sword. Again, the question is whether to their salvation or their their destruction. All right, well, that's Christ. That's, That's the name. We found out the name, his word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. We have his description and we have his armament. What is he going to do with it? Is this just a ceremonial army? Is he just a ceremonial king that likes to put on the uniform but doesn't ever do anything? No. There are going to be real deeds of this king to talk about, these fell deeds. First of all, the preparation. It's, he's making a preparation when, before this battle takes place. And it's an interesting kind of preparation because it's not a preparation that a cowardly commander would make, a preparation for a retreat. It's not the preparation of a cautious commander to make preparations for reinforcements or something like that. It's only and just and merely a preparation of what to do with the slain. So certain is the outcome of this battle. The only preparation he makes is what is he going to do with the slain. It says in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and of the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. That's the preparation that's being made. Now this preparation, this kind of idea of the birds of the air coming to eat the bodies of the slain has an interesting history in Scripture. I'd be tempted to, uh, to mention the several instances, but I just want to give you this most powerful one, which actually happens back in in 1 Samuel 17. 
It's, you know the story of David and Goliath, but I wonder if you'd considered the interplay of these things. When in 1 Samuel 17, verse 44, the Philistine, that is Goliath, this symbol of Satan, this symbol of wickedness and rebellion against God and his people. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. He's so certain of the outcome. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel." And this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Philistine comes and says, I'm going to give your your dead body to the birds of the air. David says, no. No, I'm going to give your dead body to the birds of the air, because the battle is not mine, but it's the Lord's. And what was said and what was true of Goliath, as we know that that's exactly what happened, is going to be the reality for every last person who sets himself up against God's authority. Every last one who does not bow the knee to this king, their only preparation will be, therefore, their body to be given to the birds of heaven. Then there's, So there's a preparation in terms of what to do with the slain. There's then the gathering to battle in verse 19. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And that's, I love the way it's put in this. Because, you know, not just for us, but surely for the original recipients of Revelation, those people of the seven churches, it seemed like their situation was nearly hopeless. It seemed like Satan was going to win. Christ is nowhere in view. It's, it's hopeless. The situation seems so very tenuous. And, and you see these, these forces around, they're looming and they're menacing, they're threatening our very existence. But now in Revelation 19, we get to see it for what it really is. This gathering of forces is not going to mean our doom, it's theirs. They're being gathered for judgment. All these, the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies, they are gathered to make war against them so that they'll be judged. There are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And they were gathered together. This is from Hebrews 16, 14. And gathered together to a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Well, when you put those things together and you read and you're, you're reading this wonderful picture of Christ and then almost as a footnote, it says, and oh, by the way, the beast was gathering them all to the, the battle. You realize what it is, you see. This isn't something that is threatening our very existence. This isn't something that we need to cower in fear about. It's almost like they're being rounded up. Those who are soon going to be judged. And, well, you think, well, there's this preparation and there's this great process of gathering. And there's going to be the battle. I don't see it. We're actually kind of skipping straight to the results. It says in verse 20, then the beast was captured. It doesn't even have, in some sense, the, the glory of fighting a, night, a great battle. Sometimes there's some element of honor that can be had even in a losing cause if you put up a good fight, but it's not like that. He's just been captured. 
The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. In some sense, this is in the end, it becomes a police action. They're being seized, they're being arrested, and they're being sentenced. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's not some honorable battle. They're not taking down some as they go out, as it were. They're not able to kill any of God's people. They're not inflicting any damage on Christ. It's just the utter annihilation of the enemy. A complete victory. Justice being done. And there's no battle. You know, as with Revelation 16 and here and also in Revelation 20, we'll see it again. There is this gathering for the battle. And there's this build up. But in the end, is entirely anticlimactic. There's no battle. Just the result. Just the victory. There's no contest. It's just a display of God's infinite power. Of course, we can imagine the way that would be. Of course, we can imagine that it would be the case that there wouldn't be a battle, is there? A battle implies that there's some kind of fair fight. A battle implies that there's some sort of uh, strength on strength. But that isn't the case when Christ comes in all of his kingly authority to put down all of his enemies. They're just going to be crushed. What exactly power are these worms who raise themselves up against their creator? What kind of power do they have? It's not at all. They'll just be crushed. In Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and all the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Who can stand? No one can stand before him. When he puts on that sword, when he goes forth to conquer with his army, no one's going to stand. And it's just like what we had back in Revelation 6.16 that was already, already displaying what was going to happen. These people who thought they were so high and mighty, who say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who can stand? Who is able to stand? No one. That's why there's no battle. No great battle scene of Satan fighting valiantly, just a police action, arrested and thrown into the lake of fire forever. Such it is with this great King of kings and Lord of lords. Such is his power. Such is his justice. Such is his authority. That has manifested it to the world. Now to apply these things to ourselves, the main question I would simply ask us all is just when are you going to be conquered by this king? I want you to know it's no fairy tale. As I said, I want you to understand that these words are true and faithful. That's part of the very identity of this one that we've seen this morning. He is true and faithful, and he cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. And what is being said this morning is the truth of God. Now, you, for your own reasons, may want to carry on in rebellion against this king. But know for certain, if there's some thought in your mind somewhere that maybe it won't happen, you need to understand that that's the fairy tale. That's the fantasy. It's going to happen. And however high and mighty you imagine yourself now, there will be no great battle in the end. You'll just simply be put down and cast into the lake of fire and enduring forever in torment.
You will be conquered. You certainly will be. But when? You're going to face this Lord Jesus Christ, but are you going to face him as the lamb or as the lion? That's the question. You know, the great wedding feast of the lamb. The invitation goes forward to those who are in union with this lamb, those who have been engaged with him. I mentioned before that that's the work that's going on now. Christ is going out to conquer. The gospel is going forth. The invitation is being sent out. And the invitation is, receive me in faith. Bow the knee now. And you'll be saved. You will be conquered by this king. You have to be. It's more easy that this, the stars would fall to, to the ground than that one rebel would be allowed to remain in rebellion. So we're going to be conquered. And I urge you to be conquered by him now. Conquered not so much in terms of brute power, because that will happen at the end. Not so much in brute power, but conquered by his glorious authority and the wonder what he's done for you. This morning we've looked mainly about his blood-soaked clothing as he comes to judge people, but he had a different kind of blood-soaked clothing, didn't he, at one point? At that day on the cross, that he bled and he died for us. And his robes, well, no robes, they'd been stripped off him. But what remained is his body were soaked with blood. And maybe, maybe, God would enable us to see him in his the glory of his salvation, the glory of his work on the cross that we might come to him in faith. And if you do that, you will not meet him as this conquering king, but you'll come into the the, the Lamb's feast. And for all of us, we cannot forget the end of the story. You know, we're just like Christ was in a state of humility. We are in a state of humility. It's well-deserved in our case, of course. What, what else do we deserve? But we're in a state of anonymity and humility. And we're in a situation where the world seems to be arrayed against us. And many times we're going to feel like there's just nothing to be done. And we're going to be tempted to despair. And for us, we cannot forget the end of the story. I know I've said this before, but think about it one more time. Sometimes you read a book and you think to yourself, you know, I know the end of this story. Why are they despairing? You know, it seems, it seems silly and seems trivial, the things that they're despairing, because just turn a couple more pages and you get to the end. And they win. And it's all glorious. And they live happy, happy ever after, right? Turn to the end of this book when you're tempted to despair. When you think that everything is arrayed against you and you don't have a chance. When you're tempted to sin. When any of these things reach you and you feel like there's nothing there, turn to the end of the book and see what the story, how the story ends. Because we win. And the victory is total. And we do live happily ever after. And if you can live in the reality of that eternal moment then these things that happen, these persecutions, these trials, these temptations, fly away like vapor. Now, on the other hand, if we forget about these things, if Satan somehow can cast the spell, if the world can blind us and put those blinders on us and make us live in the box, you know, the, again, the picture of, 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 
Satan putting people in the box of his illusions and putting them on the conveyor belt to hell so they don't see what's going to happen in the end. Because no one in their right mind would ever refuse Christ if they understood that end. Now, if we let that happen, then we're, sh- we're certain to fall. We are certain to live in despair and miserable uh, situation. We're going to be depressed. But if we're able to think of these things and keep them straight before our mind, then everything else is going to take care of itself. Second Timothy 2 says this, You must therefore endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. There is hardship to endure, but it's not so hard when you recognize that you're in this victorious army, that already we are part of a procession that's going to lead to certain victory. Thirdly and finally, I'd say don't hide the weapon. You know, if this is, if this word of God, this two-edged sword is in fact the great weapon by which Christ is going to conquer the world, where he's going to bring people into judgment, and on the other hand, he's going to save his own people, then why do we want to use something else? I say this because, sadly, there's a movement afoot, even in evangelical churches, to get us to lay down that weapon and pick something else up. But the time for the reading and the preaching and the singing of God's own word has come and gone. And to reach this culture, we've got to do something else. We have to put it, we have to, and of course, this, this isn't exactly entirely new, is it? It's been going on for some time, but it's been gathering in its force. And more and more people are, are succumbing to these arguments. We've got to put up the flat screen, and we've got to have the videos, and we've got to have the drama. And, and even in our preaching, it's just got to be on human wisdom and stories and all the rest of it. Well, I'm no pragmatist, but I think there's a sense of which we can be a reformed pragmatist and say it doesn't work. But all that stuff does not work. Satan isn't afraid of it in the slightest, and he is laughing all the way to the bank if he can get us to put down the sword of the word. If he can get you during the week to ignore his word, not read it, that is fantastic. That's great. That's fine by him. We can show videos all day long. We can have all the puppet shows and all the drama, and Satan's not in the slightest threatened by it. On the other hand, no one's going to come to Christ that way, no one really, because people come through the word of God. They They come by faith, and faith comes by hearing of a word. And without word, without this powerful weapon, No one is ever going to be saved. Let's not listen. Let's not put up. You know, I I think of um, Ginny Geddes, the Scottish working woman who picked up her stool. People used to bring stools, you know, to church. There was no chairs. And threw it at the minister who had uh, compromised and was willing to use this terrible liturgy rather than declaring things in their purity and, and, and truth. She wasn't going to put up with it. Well, the problem, of course, we know half the problem is that ministers are falling into this thing. But the other half of the problem is that people are willing to abide by it. We've got to pick up our stools if somebody gives us something other than the Word of God. Because it's the only weapon. It's the only way by which we're going to be cleaned. It's the only surgical instrument by which all of our many tumors of sin are going to be removed from us. 
And it's the only way by which our family and friends and loved ones are going to be saved. Don't put down that weapon. Don't hide it. Use it. Let's pray. Great, almighty, conquering King. Heavenly Father, how we pray your forgiveness for the ways in which we have treated you slightly, for the ways in which we have dishonored you, for the ways in which we imagined that we were dealing with someone who is just like ourselves, someone treating the holy God as if you were not holy, trampling underfoot your word. Lord, some in a sense of hearing the gospel and not repenting, hearing the gospel and not putting their faith in Christ, dishonoring him as conquering king. And of your own people all too many times, daring to sin against you, knowing that, um, presuming, Lord, that, that we will just simply have no consequences. Lord, help us to remember that there is no sin without blood and someone's going to pay the consequence for each and every sin. There's going to be some blood-soaked garment. It's going to come from someone's veins. Help us to recognize your holiness. Help, we pray, that all here who haven't bowed the knee to Christ would do so, that they'd put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and that we all together would come into the wedding feast of the Lamb and not face the wrath of the Lamb as he comes as the King to conquer. And how we pray, Lord, that your conquering work through Christ would be done and that the word of God would prosper and that none of your people would dare to hide it or to distort it or to put it away in various ways, but rather, Lord, that your word and your spirit would be doing the great work of gathering, gathering your people and even gathering those who are going to be brought to judgment. We pray that in all these things that Christ might have all glory. We ask it in his name. Amen.